And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, we're kind of taking a bit of a break uh, from our Galatians series. We'll be jumping into that very soon. Uh, But Matthew chapter 5 is where we are at this morning. Uh, we're, we're calling this short series Back to the Basics. We've been talking about just who we are as a church, and we've been trying to answer that question, where are we going as a church? And so we've been focusing on our three values. Um, anybody, anybody know our three values? <laughs> the first one is vulnerable what? Anybody got it? Communion. All right, Dan Foster, you get a star. All right. Uh, vulnerable communion. Everything begins with relationship with God when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to who we are as the church. It all begins with relationship to him, that vulnerable communion. We don't come with our pride. We don't come with all our achievements. No, he says, put that stuff down. You come to me as you are, broken as you know you are, sinful as you know you are. You come to me. We bring all our brokenness to the table. He's the one that brings the grace, the transformation. It all begins with vulnerable communion. But then the second value that we considered uh, last week is intentional community. All right? So it takes intentionality to gather as we're gathering. It takes intentionality to move towards one another and to share together in Christ. Remember, vulnerable communion, we, we have this relationship with with Christ through Jesus, right? Jesus has paid the debt, and so through Jesus we have a relationship with God, but that relationship, we now get to participate in it with one another. We get to share in Jesus with one another. We become now a community who is defined by love. Why? Because we've been loved. If you know the love of Christ, you can't but then be transformed by that, be molded by that, and be one who now loves as you have been loved. So we've seen vulnerable communion, intentional community, but then third, we're considering this morning sacrificial mission. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read through verses 1 through 16. But we're going to actually just focus on one little phrase in verse 14, which says, you are the light of the world. Okay, but I want to read verses 1 through 16 just to gain some context and some reference to where we're at this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he begins to teach them. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. And he opened his mouth and taught his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. Comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Rejoice in that and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are, disciples, followers of Jesus, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is an incredible statement, verse 14, where Jesus says, you, you are, that's a plural, you are the light of the world. Just take it in for a moment. You, think of Jesus in the flesh was here and he'd look into your eyes, he'd look into your eyes and he'd say, you are the light of the world. How would that feel? <laughs> daunting, <laughs> right? It, there is this daunting reality to it, but it's like because it comes out of the mouth of Jesus, there must be some glory there. It must be something that like, all right, if he's saying it, he, he must be providing the power to make that a reality. Like, I don't want to fill those shoes necessarily, but there's great concern there. Oh man, I could never be light within this world. I could never make much change within this world, but it's coming from Jesus' lips. It's coming from the king's lips, so to speak. Right? And it provides this inner tension. And, and really the reason why it provides this tension is because Jesus is talking about the ethics of his own kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus saying, this is what my kingdom's like. This is what Christians are to be. This is what Christians are to do. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of my kingdom. A citizen of light. Right? But there is a clash of kingdoms, isn't there? The kingdom of heaven has come and clashed into this kingdom of the world, right? And now there is this, there is this, these authorities that are clashing against one another. Similar to, you know, the illustration would be you're, you're an American citizen. You're a citizen of this country, but if you're gonna go to another country, let's say a European country or something like that, you're gonna feel the clash just by jumping into a car and trying to drive, right? The steering wheel is gonna be where? Other side, you're gonna, okay, well, this, this is off, We're, this is different now, and that now you're gonna be driving on the other side of the road, right? You try to take American ways and take them to European country, and there's gonna be a collision. There's going to be tensions. There's going to be a clash of kingdoms. And that's what Jesus is actually talking about. He's talking about the ethic of his kingdom that inevitably is going to clash with the kingdom of this world. There's priorities and principles at work within this world that are going to stand contrary to God's own principles for his kingdom and for his people. And so what we find 
in this teaching is inevitable tension just to hear you're the light of the world. It's like, whoa, all right. Yeah, I get there's darkness, but me, light? I don't know how this works. Well, Jesus goes on to explain a bit. First, in the uh, verses 2 all the way down through 12, Jesus begins to talk about what a Christian is. We often look at the Beatitudes of like, hey, you know, something to strive for, but it's actually just a description of what a Christian is. But then when he jumps into verses uh, 13 and following, in particular verse 14 that we're considering, he's talking about what a Christian does. So we have what a Christian is and then what a Christian does. And what is a Christian? Just to kind of grasp the context. What a Christian is, in verse 2, he is poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means that he's bankrupt of any hope outside of the king, King Jesus. He is one who mourns, that is, he mourns the empty hopes of this world as he awaits the coming of his king. He is meek, that means he is gentle. There is nothing that he has to demand or control so as to like protect his own little kingdom on earth. No, he trusts and awaits the coming day of his king. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That is, he wants nothing than to be one, one of heart with his king. He is merciful, for he knows what mercy he has found in his king. He is pure in heart, for he knows the purity of his king. He is a peacemaker, because he knows that the peace of his king will one day crush Satan under his feet. Romans chapter 16. He rejoices in persecution. Why? Because he knows that it will earn delight and reward from his king. Jesus has described what a Christian is by those attributes, but now he begins to transition to what a Christian does. And verse 14 very clearly says that a Christian does what? He shines. That's the big idea that we have this morning. Christians are to shine. We see what Christians are to be in those first so many verses, but now Jesus is trained. This is what you are to do. You are to shine. So let's consider this statement. You are the light of the world. The first aspect that we have to recognize is really the implication of that statement, that actually the world is a dark place. Um, I don't think I have to convince you that our world is a dark place, right? Just this past week, about 30 yards over there, a man is shot in the head multiple times and killed. I don't have to, I don't have to convince you uh, that this world is a dark place, Um, but strangely enough, we have to examine this a little, a little more. Because what we will hear from the world is actually that it's enlightened. The world is saying again and again, our culture is saying again, we, we know what is best for ourselves. Right? Even, even in history, if we would go back, there's, there's this period of the enlightenment. That is, you, you've 
had your eyes open to truth. You've had your eyes open to knowledge. There's been these advancements in science and in education and instruction and philosophies and all these kinds. Of, and, and, and it's the world saying, we know best. Our heads are filled with not We got knowledge, so we're good to go. We have light, so we're good to go. We got the answers to our struggles and our problems, so we are good to go. But we should recognize that even within our world, even with the great advancements of science and technology, we have to realize that big brains don't equal wholesome lives. For all the education, for all the advancements in science and technology, we're still a broken people. You can be the smartest scientist and still be a broken person. So to say that the world is a dark place isn't to reject the fact that there's a lot of good things happening within the world. There's sciences and, and philosophies and wonderful therapies and helpful things at play within our world. Technologies that we all benefit from. Don't take that stuff away from me. Right? That's good stuff. But just because we have good things doesn't mean that we have light. And that's where our culture is falling short. They're taking hope in the things that they know, thinking, aren't we wise? Don't we have it together? Don't we have the education that we need to figure out our world? And when it comes down to it, all the advancements don't actually remedy the darkness within. So we remain in a dark world, in need of light. You see, the reason for this darkness, according to Scripture, is based upon this fundamental aspect that man is estranged from God. Right? Romans chapter 1, verse 22 says, Man claimed to be wise, but he therein became a fool and exchanged the glory of the immortable God for images. Man worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. To reject God is not enlightenment, right? It's foolishness. That's what the text is saying. While the world says this is wise, reject God, it's actually foolishness. It's actually what creates the darkness. So we live in a dark world then given up to all kinds of perversions and even what is good in the world is made oftentimes God. The world trusts then in its own understanding. It boasts in its intellectual advancements and begins to think that they are the answer to themselves. Where do you go to find the answer to yourself? Well, you look within yourself for answers. Trust in your own understanding. Exalt self to this place of divinity in your life. Try to find light and freedom within, but it's not found there. In fact, John chapter 3, Jesus' own words, he'll say this. This is the judgment. This is the reality. This is the verdict upon the world that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. 
at core, man's problem is a pride problem. The world doesn't want to admit its need. It doesn't want to give credit to God, lest they would have to admit they're wrong and humble themselves before God. They love the darkness rather than the light. This is the reality that Jesus is speaking to. The world is dark because it's estranged from God. It's chosen it. It wants it. It does not want God. Scripture will say no man seeks after God. How can, how can that be true? Because don't we find ourselves, even when we didn't know Jesus at that time, you know, it's like, weren't we kind of searching? We were searching. So how can Scripture say that no man seeks after God? Well, it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not that man doesn't, seek after God, necessarily, but he's always trying to make that God fit his own purposes and his own agenda. He's not seeking after a God to humble himself before that God, to keep accountability before that God, to say, God, I'm abandoning all authority in myself and, and receiving it from you. That's the idea. People don't seek after God. They don't humble themselves before God. They just want to use God. And let me just get into this for a moment. Even when it comes to recovery, what's some of the first steps that you're doing? You're giving your will over to that higher power. But folks, giving your will over to a higher power, we have to be ever so careful. We are good at taking our will right back. We are good at saying, yep, I'm going to submit my will only to get what I need from God. And therefore, when I get what I need from God, I'm going to go do my own thing. I abandon my God all over again, running from him. This is the darkness. This is the cyclical darkness of this world, that we are estranged from God, that we only use God for our own purposes, and then we abandon him. Foxhole prayers. How many times have I heard it from folks? Feeling shame because the only time they're actually crying out to the Lord is when, man, their, their life is in a bind. So they cry out to him then, but it's not a true relationship. It's just someone that they're looking for for relief in the moment. And this is what Jesus is saying is the darkness in the world. The core, the rea the core reality of darkness is that people are estranged from God and they love this darkness rather than the light. But folks, this is what makes the church so necessary. While the world seeks light in everything else, right? Jesus says to simple, ordinary Christians, he says to you and me, he says, you are the light of the world, right? The church is not a secondary thing in God's purposes. It's not a peripheral thing. God's purpose in the church is primary. It's utmost. The church, if we could say it this way, carries primary importance in God's economy. Jesus is saying, you, church, Christians, followers of me, you are the light in this dark World, You are God's answer for this darkness. We are the answer for the murder that happened over there. We're the, we're the answer for the drug deals that go, around, uh, go on around the corner. 
We're the answer for the abuse that is happening, for the domestic problems that are at work within this world. We're the answer. Do you catch what he's saying? You are the light of the world. That's a stunning reality. It's the church that then is of utmost necessity. And, and, and here's my concern, that the church doesn't even recognize its own identity. It doesn't even recognize its own importance. And so we treat the church as though it's a secondary optional thing. But it's the very church that God has intended to be light in a world of darkness. It's his primary thing. And so if we treat it as a secondary and optional thing, well, will the dark world ever encounter the light that it so desperately needs? Now, how in the world are we to be light in this world? Remember, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm like, wait, isn't it Jesus who says, I am the light of the world? Remember that? It's, it's Jesus. What, what, I'm not the light of the world. He's the light of the world. How is it then that he can say that we are the light of the world? So who in the world is the light? Let's say it that way. Is it Jesus or is it us? And the answer is yes. Right? It's like Jesus, in some sense, tagged us and said, you're it. Now you get, you get to shine. So in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus will speak to the Pharisees and he'll say to them, I am the light of the world. Notice this. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You're going to have light. Why? Because you have Jesus. Right? Or Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, Christ not only gives us himself the light of the world, but he makes us light. To be born again is to be made one with Christ. You now, by definition, are light. We are partakers in his divine nature, as 2 Peter chapter 1 would say. Or I love how Jesus describes this reality of how we become light by uh, referencing in John 14. He says, I'm going to manifest myself to you, through you. And, he, and, and one of his disciples said, how in the world is that going to happen? He says, because I and my Father will come and make our home in you. He's going to come and fill us, possess us, remake us. Hence the term being born again. I am not what I used to be. The natural thing now as a Christian, one who's trusted in Jesus, is that I'm a partaker in his divine nature, that it's only natural for me to give myself to this light, to shining as Jesus shines in this world. The glory of your salvation, then, is not just that you get the light of Christ, but you become the light of Christ. Folks, this is astonishing. Just try to get your head around this reality. You are a vessel 
divinely re-engineered to host infinite glory. Well, I'm just nothing. I'm just nothing. You know, we struggle with getting in our own head about who we are. Stop getting in your head about who you are, right? Get in your head about everything that Jesus has made you to be. Who does he say you are? You're the light of the world. Okay, that's who I am then, right? That's what is true of me. You are a vessel divinely re-engineered to host infinite glory. It is him in you, you in him, hence the light of the world. Get it? Notice then in verse 15, Jesus uses the illustration of a lamp. He says, people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The natural thing to do with a burning lamp is to set it on a stand, right? So it gives light. And it's unnatural to take a basket or whatever he's saying, a bushel, or you know, and put it over the lamp. If it's burning, if it's shining, it's always to be propped up. You're, you're gonna allow it to give off the light, right? In the same way, it's only natural for you, Christian, to shine. It's natural. In who he's remade you to be, the new creation that you now are in Jesus, it's only natural for you to shine. It's actually unnatural for you to go hide away and dibble-dabble with your stuff. Your sins, your perversions, to dibble-dabble in, in the darkness, that's an unnatural thing. You were not remade for that. You were not saved for that. You weren't made to dibble-dabble in the darkness. Put that bushel over you. I'm not shining. I'm just going to stay where I've always been. You were remade for more. It's to be natural. Your genetic code now is to shine, right? Because you now partake in his divine nature. You're just not who you used to be. You got God Almighty living in you. Amen. You're a lamp meant to shine. Folks, this, this will be a challenge, right? to live out what is natural to us because there's still flesh and sin at work in us. So those temptations are always there. But I do want to make it clear, this should be a natural thing. It should be almost a fluid thing. And, and we should recognize that, yes, there's going to be moments and difficulties of battle and temptation that we need to fight through. But I do think that God ultimately gives us gives us something in which to experience something that is fluid. It becomes natural to walk in the things of the Lord. If you're, if you're still struggling and feel like you're bound in different ways, there's more of him to know and to understand. There's more of his presence, so to speak, to take in. Right? You need to be set free if you're still struggling in different ways. If you still got that basket over you, it's time to be set free. Time to shine. Don't stay in your darkness when you are a partaker in his divine nature. Right? This should be natural to us. 
we should sense in some way, as I've been reading in an autobiography of a, of a woman named uh, Madame Guyon, 1600s, uh, but she ta talks about all the troubles of her life, but she says, she talks about these moments, these times in her life where it's like her will becomes one with the Lord. It's like sweet fellowship with the Lord just becomes so natural. She doesn't have to think twice about it. She doesn't have to battle all the temptations of the flesh. It just happens natural. It's fluid. Folks, I just want to say, that's possible. I think we just expect, no, we're always supposed to be in the battle, and I shouldn't expect myself to shine too much. You know, I'm not going to be much of an influence in this world, and so I'm just going to stick to myself and stick to my rut and always stay where I'm at. This world needs you to shine. And as you give yourself to the Lord, oh, how sweet that relationship might be, such that even in times where there is struggle, oh, you just feel like, man, my, my will is aligned with the will of the Father, and this is just so natural. He wants, you to, he wants to take you there, if I could say it that way. Now, A Christian should not, according to this text, be able to escape notice if they are being who they truly are. Catch that? Like, if you're being who you are as a Christian, you're going to shine. Right? But the question then is still, well, who am I? Remember what Jesus has already covered. Who are you as a Christian? Well, verses 2 down through 11... That's who you are. You're a blessed one. And blessing just doesn't mean that God is like, ah, oh, here's, here, here's a blessing. You need a little financial aid? Here's a little, here's a little blessing. That, that's not the idea. It's not a tangible like, gift that he sends your way by blessing you. You are the blessed one. It's that he gives himself to you. To be blessed is to know the favor of God. To be blessed is to know the presence of God. These individuals that are described here in verses 2 through 11 are, are those who are encountering, taking in on a regular basis, the presence of God. They are blessed. God's face shines upon them. And let's just remember who they are, to go through it again. They are poor in spirit. They see all worldly hopes and dreams as being empty and bankrupt. How many times are you looking at the world saying, man, I want that car, I want that, I want that home, I want this experience in my life, I want that relationship, I need this, I need that. I need all this stuff. You're not poor in spirit. You haven't come to find that all that stuff apart from God himself is empty, dust in your mouth. It carries no weight whatsoever. You're going to get that stuff, and guess what that house is going to do? It's going to start giving you problems. It's going to break down. That new car, it's going to break down. That new relationship, you know what it's going to do? It's going to betray you, and you're going to be left back to ground zero. Here I am, hoping for things in this life, but I'm not poor in spirit. God wants to use the poor in spirit. You look around the world and say, none of this satisfies outside of God. Remember darkness? Darkness, by definition, is estrangement from God. Whenever I take these things and think that they're going to be God for me, they're going to satisfy who I am as an individual, 
it always goes bad. That's darkness. God's saying the Christian is one who's poor in spirit, who's, whose heart recognizes, nope, those things don't satisfy. Only he satisfies. Only his presence. They mourn in this life. Christians mourn. We mourn. We cry. You know why we cry? We cry because we recognize that this world is given to all those hopes and dreams. We mourn it. We lament the world that we live in. We lament it. Because our world is given to what is empty. And so we mourn just saying, Lord, would you just come? Would you come? Open the eyes of the blind to see just who you are. We mourn that reality. Folks, Christians who, who encounter, who are blessed, who know the divine nature of Christ, who are filled with him on a regular basis, they are meek. That is, they are gentle. They're not demanding, controlling life. It's not ultimate for me to lose anything. Right? It's not ultimate if someone does me wrong. Why? Because the things that they're doing me wrong by aren't ultimate to me. I have God. He's ultimate. He's my significance. He's my worth. Yeah, say things against me, do things against me, do underhanded things in terms of business deals and all that kind of stuff. It, it's not ultimate to me. I don't have to control you. I don't have to demand something of you. I can live in meekness and gentleness because I know who my Jesus is. These are Christians. Christians then hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, there is an ache. There is an appetite within that says, oh, God, bring righteousness to bear. Satisfy my heart with your righteousness. Bring righteousness, justice to bear within this world. Oh, we hunger for it. It's a heartthrob. But they are merciful. Why, why are Christians merciful? Why? Because they know the mercy that they've been given. <laughs> I don't deserve anything from God, and God has given, him, given me himself, right? Christians are pure in heart because they know the heart of the king. They just want to be like their Savior. They just want to be like their Jesus. And they are peacemakers. Remember, because Christians know that it is, it is the peace of the king that will crush Satan. Satan is one who wants unforgiveness to be a reality, conflict to be a reality. But it's Jesus who comes, and as king, the king of peace, he will crush Satan under our feet. That's why we're peacemakers. Bring conflict against me. I'm going to bring peace at you. That's the way the kingdom functions. My God wins through peace. So this, then, is who a Christian is. This is just, this is the normal stuff of a Christian. It should be kind of the, the attributes of a Christian, just part of our makeup as Christians. And so it begs the question again, how then do we shine? Okay, this is who we are, but how do I, like, how does this shine? The way we shine as Christians is that we give ourselves to becoming more and more of who we actually are. Be who you are. 
That's the answer. How do you shine? Be who God has made you to be. Be who Christ has saved you to be. This is the constant work and the glory of the Christian life. We apply ourselves to those very attributes that I just read. Right? We give ourselves to who Christ has made us to be so that we become a consistent habitation for his dwelling, so that we might burn with the glory of his presence, so that the world doesn't just encounter Dan, they encounter Dan in Christ and Christ in Dan. Do you see? God loves to fill those who are poor in spirit. You want to know the presence of the Lord? You want to encounter rich intimacy with him? Apply yourselves to who you are. One who is poor in spirit, one who mourns uh, this world, one who is meek, one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, one who is merciful, one who is pure in heart, one who is a peace. Apply yourself to that. And inevitably, you become a habitation fit for his presence. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, we tend to think that once and forever we come to Christ and thereafter have this permanent supply of his presence. He says, not at all. It is a supply that we have to renew. We have to go back and receive it constantly. We are to live in contact with him, and it is only as we constantly receive this life from him that we shall function as light. The Christian life is learning to be who we truly are so that we live in oneness with his presence. And therein, so that the world comes to know him through our everyday words and works. Do you see? Apply yourself to who you actually are in Jesus and you become a fit lamp for the oil of his presence to dwell. Don't think, and I think for many Christians, we tend to just harbor ourselves on these particular thoughts that, well, when I came to faith, I received everything I am going to get. That is not true. You received everything in terms of your inheritance in Christ, but you have to apply yourself to that relationship. You have to make yourself a fit vessel for his holy habitation. That's the Christian walk. The Christian walk is saying, how do I clean out the clutter? How do I remove all the stuff that just takes up room in my mind and in my heart so as to be a heart that is fit for his holy presence? Folks, he wants to fill you. He wants to invite you into greater depths of relationship with him. There is glory. From degree of glory to degree of glory, he wants to fill you, to work through you, to shine through you, that it might truly then be said of you, you are the light. Of the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? You got to be who you are in Christ 
to be a fit habitation for Christ, that you might shine as the light you're meant to be. Right? As a value now, sacrificial mission, as a value, I just want to conclude by showing you um, the statement that we have like on our website and everywhere else when it comes to this value states this. Um, As followers of Jesus, God has given us a mission to introduce Christ to others and to see churches started locally and globally. Like the early church, this mission involves unique risk and sacrifice. And as such, Christ pours out his spirit in order to lead and strengthen us for this mission. Therefore, as a church, we devote ourselves to the local and global advancement of the gospel through prayerful risk and spirit-empowered ministry. I think those last two attributes are so important. Prayerful risk. As we're not just shining to shine, so to speak. We want to have our hearts aligned with him, and that's what prayer does. It aligns our hearts. And Lord, how do you want us to move forward? What do you want us to do specifically, actively within this neighborhood? Lord, show us, lead us. And yeah, it's going to feel like risk. So even, uh, what was it, Friday night, we go out to Sheltonham and Torsdale to just like, all right, we're going to, so to speak, literally put a shingle out and just see what happens. We're going to gather, and we're going to play some songs, and we're going to pray, and we're going to engage the Lord, and we're going to see who we can talk with, right? In in a real sense, that was the the prayerful risk. As months passed, uh, months previous, uh, this is one of the ideas that came to the forefront. Lord, it seems as though you want something to happen down there. And, and so we prayed through it. Lord, is this really what you want? And then others confirmed it. Let's do it. And there we went, right? It's prayerful risk. It feels uncomfortable. You're taking a Friday night. That's not always easy. And we're going out to share Christ with others. As simple as that is, it's prayerful risk. Lord, we want our hearts aligned with you, not just doing stuff to be busy, doing stuff to do stuff. We want to do stuff that's aligned with you. But as we do it, then, we want to be in spirit-empowered, right? We, we want to say, God, we can't do this in ourselves. You have to shine through us. You are the light of the world, but now you've called us the light of the world. So you and us, us in you, Lord, would you empower and enable this time to shine for you. That's the church. That's our mission. It comes at a cost. It comes with risk. It's going to come uh, when, when, you know, you, it's like, Times of inconvenience. I don't want to do this right now. It's inconvenient for me to do these things right now, but it's what the Lord is leading you into. And so you arrange your life into what God is doing, not into what you've kind of set up your own earthly kingdom to be. It's risky. It's sacrificial. It's hard. And yet, you are the light of the world. You. You're his plan for this neighborhood. You. (laughs) But remember, it's not just you. It's him in you, you and him, the light of the world. So, Lord, we ask that you would make us a people 
then who shine brightly for you. Lord, that we would apply ourselves more and more to just who we are, who you've made us to be, that we might be a holy habitation of your presence, that you would fill us, Lord, that you would fill us, and in filling us, that you would be the oil that burns brightly through us for your name's sake. So, Lord, challenge our hearts with whatever's been said this morning in terms of just the little details. You take the little details and you kind of stick them on our hearts and you, and you begin working them into us. And so, Lord, I bless the work that you're doing. I pray that you'd um, give us then hearts to receive it and to apply it as you are leading. That we wouldn't just go from this place having had those little, those little touches, those little pushes on us and, and just, just moving into the next thing. Lord, that we'd take... Uh, enough time, a little slowdown to apprehend what you're actually saying to us, the things that need to change in our lives, the things that uh, you are calling us to in our lives, Lord, that, um, that you would ultimately shine through us. So, Lord, have your way in our hearts and our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to do something a little different. On the heels of a murder that happened, whatever, 30 yards away from our corner, um, we're going to go take communion at that spot. All right, so we're going to walk out there. Uh, we're, we have a few songs that we're going to sing, and we're just going to pray over that spot and take communion together. Sound good? A little, little out of the norm. Uh, if folks need help kind of getting over there, let, it, let us know. Uh, but let's go ahead second house in just we're going to walk over on the sidewalk you can pick up the communion elements on the back tables and we'll conclude our time together uh outside <laughs>